Well, good morning, church. You guys with us? Morning? Morning. Morning. Hey, if you got a student in junior high or high school, uh, they can follow the rest of the teens out. And uh, I was joking with them earlier. If you saw Chris, our youth director, he's got the Clark Kent look going today with the glasses and stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, if your teens have never gone, I'd encourage you to give it a shot. See what that's like. Um, if I haven't met you before, I'm Justin Risto, the discipleship pastor here, and I um, uh, just want to welcome you. Glad that you're here, whether this is your first time or whether you've been here for years and years and years. Um, we're just starting this new series called Empty Promises, and this is our um, spiritual growth campaign this year. And if you haven't been with us for one of our past ones... What it is, is typically we take six or seven weeks out of the church calendar, carve out those weeks, and we try and align what we're talking about on Sundays, what we're studying in groups, and then we also bring in some daily readings as well. And really our whole hope is to help saturate our lives with a particular truth from God's word during these weeks, um, with the whole hope that God changes and transforms and stretches and grows all of us as well. Um, but to do that, I can't do it for you. You have to decide. And so I want to just ask you to think about three commitments as we start this whole uh, uh, study. Um, and that's this. The first is just to prioritize being here, hearing uh, what's going on week after week here on Sundays. That you uh, also prioritize joining a group if you're not in one, that you join one for these six weeks. And then the third one, that you engage in the daily readings too. And really, all that is, if you want to grow, if you want to be stretched, I think if you commit to those three things over these coming weeks, God's going to show up and do some big things in your life. But as we get started, let me just pray for you, for us, for these weeks ahead as well. God, thank you for each person here. And God, my prayer for myself and for our church is that you would uh, give us eyes to see, a heart that's willing to respond, and the courage to act as we go through this series. God, would you just stretch us and grow us and uh, do much in each of our lives as well as we go through these weeks together. God, thank you again for our time this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I was getting ready for this uh, series. I was kind of thinking about this first week, about our whole topic we're going to be covering. And I came across this quote that I thought, um, I thought really helped surface the whole question we're going to be discovering. And here's the quote. You can follow it along with me. It says, In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. Yet a native in the United States clings to this world's goods as if he were certain never to die. And he is so hasty in grasping at all within his reach that one would suppose he was constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy them. At first sight, there is something surprising in this strange unrest of so many, and so many happy men. Restless in the midst of abundance. And I just thought about that, that whole term that it ends with, restless in the midst of abundance. And I just thought about the world we live in in, in America and how we really have so much available to us, so much at our fingertips, so much that we have compared to other parts of the world. And yet, if we're really honest, and if I, I'm really honest about this, there's those moments where you kind of want something more, something else, something in addition to what you already have. And our, our whole consumer culture, doesn't it just feed into that? Always kind of getting us to think, you know, you need the slimmer uh, iPhone, or you need the faster this, or you need the newer that, or the better this. I, I saw this um, ad that was about as obvious as you can get about this. New is always better. 
And all it's talking about is a sandwich. But I just thought, you know, that's like our, our culture. You know, it just plays into that same fact of like, don't just, don't just be content with what you have. But if there's something new, it's got to be better. You got to have it. You got to continue forward as well. And what's interesting about that quote I showed you um, is it was written 200 years ago. It was written by a, a Frenchman when he came and visited the U.S. and his observations of what he saw back then. And yet I just thought when I read that, you know, how, how much things haven't changed, you know, over all these years since then as well. How there's still that same spirit of restlessness that sometimes croaches into each of our lives and croaches into our culture as well. It may not be that restlessness to have more stuff, which he was referring to, that restlessness for more material possessions. But I think all of us, if we're honest, at some point, we're really yearning for true satisfaction or true happiness, true fulfillment. We're looking for something to satisfy us in some way. And that's why we chase after success and achievements and all these things. I mean, we're going to be looking at uh, all of these big topics starting from the, the end of the stage there. That's achievement that we're going to talk about last week, about that promise that we chase after. We're going to talk about approval. And hopefully I'm getting these in the right order because I can't see the front of them. But approval and how we seek out the love of others. We're going to talk about power or control, how we seek that out and the promise that it gives us. And then lastly, we're going to look at beauty and uh, money, possession finances as well. And as we look at these things, um, I think what we're going to see is, is really they are empty promises. They promise us one thing, but yet yeah, they can't deliver. And that same Frenchman, which I uh, said in first service, you know, I know I'm going to butcher his name. I'm not French, but uh, his name was, was Alex de Tocqueville. And later in his writing, he said this, he said, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And that's really what we're going to be looking at in these weeks ahead. These incomplete joys that we chase after and look to satisfy us in this world. And we're going to explore that. We're going to look at, as, as we're talking about empty promises, and where can we really find the true lasting satisfaction, contentment, happiness that we really seek after. When you look at the Bible, uh, the term that it uses time after time to describe this sense of, of empty promises is the term idol. Uh, you look in the Old and the New Testament, and idolatry is something that's kind of woven throughout. It seems like it's one of the, the most central themes and struggles with humanity, is seeking to have other gods. If you think about the Ten Commandments, um, what's the very first commandment? Okay, we got some mumbling. Some people may be having. You guys are doing better in first service, though, so that's good. It was like silent for a minute. Um, you think about it. Have no other gods before me. Exodus 20. Uh, probably a familiar passage. You should have no other gods before me, or really, as we're talking about no other gods, those are false gods or idols, we could say. Um, they're really any of those things, because it's all in the same. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Just from this, this opening passage in Exodus, I want to point out three things about idolatry, because that's really what we're exploring as we're talking about these empty promises, is it's really the idols that we set up in our lives. And so, if you notice at the, the very beginning in verse 4, it talks about how idols can be anything. It says, don't make a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath. And it's really just pointing out that, you know, anything and everything can be an idol, uh, probably over the course of history, just about everything probably has to someone at some point as well. Second thing it shows us 
is that idols are things we worship. Notice in verse 5, it says, you shall not bow down to them. And that whole idea of bowing down, it's, it's worship. I um, mean, why do we worship certain things? We think they're valuable or important or, um, yeah, just, just have a, a supreme value in some sense as well. And so we worship them. And that's really what idols are. It's, it's ascribing value to something as the ultimate thing in our lives. And the third thing you can see here is idols are things that we serve. And that's what it says in verse 5 again. Do not serve them. As you think about serving, it's the whole idea of you're willing to do anything to obey it. Um, you know, if you're serving a master, you're doing whatever that master requires of you. When you're serving an idol, you're doing anything that you think is going to appease it or is going to get that idol to give you what you want or anything that's going to actually give you that idol as well. Now, you might just think, okay, idols, idolatry, that's definitely just Old Testament, long ago. You know, it's not present anymore. And yet you skip to the New Testament, and Jesus talked about it as well in Matthew 22. He had a Pharisee come to him, and a Pharisee asked him, you know, what's the most important thing in the whole of the Old Testament? And he responded, and this is what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Really just echoing the first commandment again. You should be holy and completely devoted to and love with God, keeping him first in your, in your life, that, that he's the one that, again, you're completely uh, devoted to. And so at its core, really, idolatry is about valuing, loving, serving, uh, giving greater importance to anything else besides God. The way I want to talk about it during the series, though, is this. Idolatry occurs when we take a good thing. It could be success. It could be material possessions. It could even be family. We take a good thing, but then we make it the ultimate thing, the most important thing in our life. It's not just one amongst many, but it's the thing that we, we long for and we seek after more than anything else as well. And again, I just based that off those three points we just said in Exodus. We said idols can be anything, and yet often they seem to be good things, don't they? It's, it's very rare when it's something just evil in and of itself. It's typically something that in its simplest form is good, uh, but we make it uh, the ultimate thing in our life. We said idols are things we value the most and we worship. Again, it becomes the most important thing, the ultimate thing in our life, and that we serve it, that it becomes the controlling influence in our life. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you would say the love and approval of others is a good thing? I you say that, kind of nod your head, raise your hand, you know, we got some of those, okay. Some of you, you're not sure, this is a trick question, okay. No, I think we would say yes. Has that ever happened to you? You're like wondering if Greg asked a question, should I raise my hand, should I say yes? Um, but no, I think we would all say the love and approval of others, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with that. But yet when it becomes the ultimate thing, the thing that you ascribe the most worth and value to that is the most important thing to you, it becomes a problem. I know when I was the, the youth pastor here, um, I saw students where it seemed like they always had to be in a relationship. You know, they were dating one person, and then if that ended, then they just start dating somebody else. And it seemed like they always had to be in a relationship because they were looking for that other person to give them that sense of approval, that sense of love. Um, I know others who were in a relationship, and you just think about the compromises they made, maybe moral compromises, uh, maybe just compromising who they were. Because they want to be who that other person wants them to be, rather than being who God's designed them, gifted them, given them the personality of. They're trying to just be who that person wants because they want that love and that approval of that person. And yet time after time, those relationships end, and that person is often left 
more hopeless, uh, more desperate to find someone to try and fill that in them as well. And so again, idolatry is taking a good thing, but it's making it the ultimate thing as well. And for some of you, I know you're just going to think, you know, oh, we're talking about idols, idolatry. This is just kind of a concept outdated, irrelevant. It doesn't really apply today. And so I just want to be explicit to state a few things. And the first is this, that every culture has idols. Idols, some have said, is, is what's primarily wrong with the human heart. And the only thing that's really changed over the years is the form that idolatry takes based on the people, based on the time period, based on what's going on. The, the form that it takes in terms of temples, shrines, rituals, all of that can vary, but yet idolatry is what, it, is what is at the core. So you think of the book of Acts, the book of the, New, the world of the New Testament, the Roman Empire, and here's some of the idols that you would see there. You would, you would see... Uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Ares, the god of war. And numerous other deities as well. And people typically back then, they believed, you know, you could coerce the gods, whatever god you may need to coerce, to give you something if you did something or if you avoided something. And so, let's say a farmer thought, you know, I want, I want rain. You know, I need rain for my farm so I can grow my crops and things. Um, so he thought, you know, if I do certain things, if I go and offer this sacrifice or I go and burn this incense or I avoid doing this or doing that, the God is going to have to act. He's going to have to respond to me. And so that was pretty common back then. And yet you can see so many places today. I know I was uh, reminded in first service of uh, the McCollums who are serving over in Asia and was thinking about as they were sharing, you know, some of the temples over there where you still see people coming in, burning incense, offering certain prayers as a way to appease that God or as a way to get the blessing of that God as well, that it still happens. But in America, I mean, it's pretty rare when we see that. For us, our idols take very different shapes and forms, doesn't it? I mean, it's not how it looks in other countries. So for us, I mean, we may not physically kneel before Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, but how many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders over an unhealthy concern about how they look, about their body image? I mean, I read one place that said uh, up to 23 million Americans have some kind of eating disorder. And many of those, I'm sure, it's because they made beauty, how I look, the idol in their life. That that's the most important thing that they chase after as well. And so that's one way you can see. In our culture, we don't burn incense to Mercury, the god of trade and profit. But yeah, how often have we seen someone willing to sacrifice their family or their friends or maybe their own health just to get ahead at work, to get that promotion, to maybe start earning more money, to get that stuff? And they just are willing to do that. In our culture, idols take very different shapes than they did back then. And yet it's still idolatry because they're taking something else and making it the most important thing, the ultimate thing that they chase after. So every culture has idols. In addition to that, every person has idols, just to be explicit. I mean, the reason we see idols out there in our culture, you know, that we can point out in our culture and in other cultures, is because idols exist in here, in each and every one of our hearts. Um, I'm no different than you in that regard, that there's idols that vie for control of my heart. Uh, John Calvin, that great Protestant reformer, said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That it's always causing us to want to chase after something else rather than the true God. 
How many of you, just by a show of hands, you know someone that you would say they've made success or money or getting ahead at work, kind of the ultimate pursuit, the thing that they kind of do above all else? How many, how many of you would say you know someone or have known someone that that's the case? Okay, this is audience participation. If you know someone, keep your hand up, okay? How many of you would say you know someone, and keep your hand up, uh, have known someone or know someone that has made appearance or beauty or just seems like they have an unhealthy obsession with working out or how they look, you know, kind of their image? How many of you would say you know someone? or have known someone? Okay, keep it up. One last question, okay? Uh, how many of you say you would know someone or have known someone that was always looking for the love and approval of others to find their worth or their satisfaction? How many of you say that? Okay, look around just for a second. Okay, now you know who the rebels are because they don't have their hands up. But almost everyone has their hand up. And the reason is all of us, every single person has idols. We're just pointing them out by thinking about the other people around us. Because oftentimes we're the last person to notice in our own lives, aren't we? We can see it out there, see it in other people, but we're usually the last to see it in our own hearts as well. And really I think the reason why we think, you know, it exists in culture, it exists in every person, but yet I think I'm immune. I don't think it's going to happen to me. I'm the exception. And the reason we think that is because we're just deceiving ourselves. We're just self-deceived. In the book of Proverbs, it says it this way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Notice that. There's a way that seems right. To me, I think this is right and good. I think I'm doing the right thing, pursuing the right things. And yet, in the end, its way is death. Or you can think about it a different way. It, end, it ends in damage to relationships or into destruction or disaster of some sort. It may seem right, but we can deceive ourselves. We can justify what we're doing as right and good, and there's nothing wrong with it. And yet in the end, it ends up being something that totally isn't as well. Uh, Os Guinness, a Christian writer, he put it this way. He said, idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimation. I mean, just the truth of that. I mean, let that sink in, because that's really how deception can creep in. We can just think, you know, it's out there, it's prevalent, it's, you know, something that, yeah, maybe it does exist, but yet it's not in my heart, it's not in my life, um, it's not really relevant to me today. So I hope by this point you're thinking, okay, maybe there's one or two idols or empty promises, okay, maybe I'll give you that. Um, if you're willing to, to admit that, to at least take that first step, I want to talk about how do we discover what they might be. Um, that's really my whole goal today is just help you begin to discover what they might be. And then as we go through these weeks, we're going to look at specific ones and talk about how we can really uproot them and get them out of our lives. So the first way that we can begin to discover them is to ask God to open our eyes. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What's interesting about this psalm is if you look at the opening two verses, it begins by saying something to the effect of, God, you've searched me and God, you know me. So it's interesting, it begins there, but then it closes with God, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. And I thought it was interesting, one um, Christian writer, Ruth Haley Barton said, Probably the reason that this is the case is she said, the psalmist may not be asking him, uh, asking God to search us because he already has, but he's inviting God to help me to know myself, help me to see myself as I truly am. 
And I just thought, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense here. Um, I don't know if this has is, is ever happened to you, but I mean, uh, about a couple years ago, I was um, going through kind of a normal, normal day. You know, I got ready in the morning, took a quick shower, you know, ate breakfast, hurried out of the house, you know, got to, got to church, started working. I'm sure I had a few meetings kind of throughout the day. And then at some point during the day, I realized something. I looked down, and I had two totally different shoes on. <laughs> has anybody ever done that, or is that just me? Anybody ever done that? Okay. And, you know, for whatever reason, I left the house, had no clue, didn't even notice it, thought it was a normal day, and then at some point I realized that my eyes were open. I thought, oh, wow, I've been going through the whole day like this, wondering how many people, you know, noticed that and were wondering what's going on with him today. But, you know, that's a, a trivial thing, but yet how often does that same thing happen where we can go through busy with a given week and not slow down enough to kind of pause, to reflect, to really kind of think about who am I becoming? What kind of person am I? If you're like me, it's probably not very often you slow down enough to think about that. Um, I know, you know, I do that kind of here and there. Sometimes I'll take some notes, but I mean, it may be months that pass from when I do that. Uh, and I can just be easily unaware of who I am, of what's going on in my life. And so I want to challenge you to do something real specific. Um, when you leave today, you're going to get a card. I'll throw it up on screen too. You need a card like this on your way out. And what I want to challenge you to do is to put this somewhere you're going to see it, maybe uh, on your dashboard, maybe uh, on your mirror. You know, I don't know where you want to put it, but somewhere where you're going to see it. And then spend some time this week, maybe over the course of a few days, praying, asking God to really open your eyes and help you to see yourself. And there's some questions on here. Uh, I'm going to mention the first three because the second two um, are something we're going to talk about in a minute. But the first question is this, ask why. Which for some of you, you're going to go, that's not a question, um, but that's okay. Ask why. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing the things I'm doing? Why am I pursuing the things I'm doing? Um, really all that's going to begin to reveal is your motivation. You know, why am I sending my kids to sports and that family maybe isn't? Why am I, you know, working and doing 60 hours a week when, you know, these other people aren't? They seem content there. You know, why? You know, I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong, but really that question of why reveals some of that motivation, reveals, you know, why are you doing this? Second question, what do you worry about or fear losing? What if you lost it? Would it make life not worth living? I mean, what do you fear about or fear losing? I mean, that really, again, shows that it's valuable to you. It's important to you. I mean, maybe when I ask that question, you think about your kids. Maybe you think about losing your job. Or, you know, I don't know what it is, but that thing you think of, that's important to you. And maybe it's the thing that's the most valuable, the most important to you, if you're really honest as well. The third question is this. What are you occupied with? What occupies your mind, your week, your finances? Again, the things we think about, the things we fill our schedules with, you know, we devote time to, the things we spend money on, it's saying those things are important to us. So we're going to spend some time doing that, spend some money doing that, think about that as well. And so again, that may begin to reveal where those idols, where those empty promises may be in your life as well. So that's kind of my challenge on this first one, just to spend some time asking those questions to yourself. Now, you may do all of that and still come away thinking, hey, I'm good. You know, there's nothing kind of going on in my life. I'm not trusting anything else. And so that's why it's important to do one other thing in addition to that. And that's to invite others into your life. Uh, notice what the book of Hebrews says about this. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he starts this and he warns us, you know, watch out. Your heart can lead you astray. And then notice what he says next. Kind of, kind of the result of this. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, exhort one another. Or another word is admonish, encourage, uh, urge. I mean, those are all the ideas behind it. Uh, the word I think about most often is uh, kick in the butt. Because that's really the whole idea. Who are the people in your life that are going to give you that kick in the butt that are going to go, hey, what's going on? Why are you spending so much time at work to the neglect of your family? Why are you pursuing this when it's really not making you the man or the woman that you really want to be and that God wants you to be? I mean, who are the people that are really going to challenge you, that are really going to draw that out from you? Who are the people you've given permission to to call you onto the carpet? Some of you, I know you've had friends for years. People maybe that uh, you met when your kids were small and you've stayed in touch with them. But when was the last time you had a meaningful conversation with them? When was the last time you maybe asked them, you know, what they're learning, what God's teaching them? Uh, when was the last time you got beyond just talking about maybe sports or what you worked on at home or, you know, what's going on with the kids and really got beyond that to say, you know, what do you feel like God's teaching you? Where do you feel like you need to grow? Where can I encourage you or challenge you to go further? Who is it for you that you've invited in? Um, every December, our small group has a Christmas party. And for me, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, and the reason is because I ask two questions that I always find to be just encouraging as a, as a leader and kind of fun to ask. So I ask them, you know, what was your favorite moment this last year in our group? That's always fun because you get to hear all kinds of comments, you know, something we did or a particular study or all sorts of things. And then I ask them, where have you seen someone grow during this past year? And the reason I ask that is because oftentimes we're the last person to see ourselves grow, aren't we? I mean, life change is slow. It's often incremental. And so we may go a whole year and have grown a lot. But to us, it looks like we're in the same place we were a year ago. So I asked this question, and uh, we were sharing in our group about this. And, you know, I shared, I think, a few things. Other people kind of shared about other people in the group. And then there was one woman in our group that shared something about me, which I was surprised. I'm like, okay, you know, what, what do you want to share? And so she said this. She said, it was nice the few times last year when you shared your weaknesses and struggles. It's kind of like you took the pastor hat off and were just being yourself. I appreciated hearing that from her, but at the same time, it also helped me realize I'm not always as honest as I think I am. You know, I think that I'm being kind of transparent about the struggles, the stresses, the things going on, but apparently sometimes I just act like I have it all together when I really don't. Um, and it was good. And it was only because I had invited her in and the other people in our group in that she was able to speak those words to affirm me, but also as a challenge to kind of press me to do that more often, to continue to, to offer it up as well. And um, so that's part of what I want to challenge you to do in this second part is, is uh, if you're not in a group, grab a few friends and start one. Or maybe, you know, you're thinking, okay, I don't really know anybody here. You know, I can't start a group. That's why we're offering small groups. And you can go meet a leader today on the patio, uh, over a dozen different groups. And um, I would just say, if you committed six weeks to being with that group, you're going to have a group that you have at least a few friends in by the time you're done over these next six weeks as well. I know one of the leaders last year shared, you know, they didn't know anyone in their group prior to starting 
And yet, by the time those six weeks are done, they felt like, you know, they had known them for, you know, many, many months at that point as well. And yet, they just began as a group who didn't know each other, but they were going to be intentional to invite each other in to be a part of their life. So don't miss out on that. One person said, uh, you know, God's gift to us is community. And sometimes we can think as Americans, as individuals, you know, we don't really need that. But I just want to challenge you and encourage you to set aside any of those objections, any of those fears, any of those, well, I don't really need to do that. This is something we all need. I need this. You need this. So who are the people around you that you've invited in to be a part of your life? And as you think about those people, I want to give you one verse to think about um, to kind of know, you know, have I invited the right people into my life? Proverbs 27 says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Really what this, these two verses are getting at is that sometimes true friends are going to say things that sting, say things that hurt, say things that, that may be painful. But the difference between that and somebody who's, who's not a friend, who's not really for you, is a friend says something to correct you. They want to draw out the best of you. They want to say it because they know, hey, that's not the kind of person you want to be. Whereas somebody who's not a friend, not for you, they're going to say it just to condemn you, to hurt you, to just poke at you. Um, and it's not something meant to correct in a positive way and be a positive thing. So think about who are those people around you. And again, that's kind of the challenge I want to give you on this second one is, is how can you be inten more intentional to incorporate those relationships. And again, you may already have those people around you, but yet when's the last time you talked about something meaningful, something of substance? Uh, and I just encourage you, if you got those people, grab them, stop by the patio, they'll give you materials, curriculum, get you started, try and walk alongside you during these weeks. But if you don't, that's why we want to be here to help, be here to serve, give you an opportunity to get to know some people over these next six weeks and join a group as well. I know for, for my wife, Cammie and I, because we're in a group that meets every single week, it's one of the intentional ways we know we're going to see these people. I don't know if you're like me, things get busy. Some people I don't see, you know, for weeks or months because of just life and the other commitments I have. But I know I'm going to see those people Thursday night when we meet. And we're going to get to uh, share what's going on. We're going to get to encourage each other, challenge each other, and continue forward as well. You know, as I, as I close, at some point... You're going to discover that idols or empty promises exist in your life. At some point, you're going to realize that. But the question you have today is when and how are you going to discover that? Uh, you can wait and put it off till later and think, you know, this isn't really something I need to worry about right now. But you're going to discover at some point that those things you're trusting in are empty. They're going to fail you at some point. They're going to leave you maybe in a point of despair or hopelessness or just feeling like, I'm just restless. I just know there's something more, but yet this didn't give it to me like it promised. Or you can choose a different path. You can choose to discover them now, to begin to spend some time thinking about and asking God, God, where are those idols? Where are those empty promises in my life that I need to begin to turn from? Back in 2008, um, during, you know, just the whole economic upheaval that took place, I came, a, uh, came across a story that took place in that year. And it was about a, an executive from Bear Stearns, um, that big financial company that was at the point of collapse. So they were being bought out by J.P. Morgan Chase. And the executive uh, at uh, Bear Stearns realized he's not going to get hired by J.P. Morgan Chase. And so in response, what he did is he took some drugs, 
and he jumped out of his 29th story office and committed suicide. And later, this is what a friend said. He said, this Bear Stearns thing broke his spirit. And when I came across that, I just thought, you know, that man hit the point of despair because he had made uh, success and money and accumulating these things the ultimate thing in his life, the most important thing in his life. And it wasn't that he just did that in 2008. It was that in 2008, it was revealed to him when everything was taken from him. And so for you and I, that's a sober reminder that what we're talking about as we go through this series, they're, they're very real. They impact our lives in all different ways. I pray none, none as tragic as that man, but yet all of us, we're looking for contentment. We're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for fulfillment and love. We're looking for all these things, and yet often that thing can become the ultimate thing in our life, the most important thing, more than the true and living God. And only he will be the one to satisfy us wholly and completely. So I want to challenge you, those two things I mentioned. You're going to get the card on your way out today. Spend some time doing that. And the second one is get in a group or start a group. And really to just say, you know what, regardless of what objections I may have, what things maybe I'm going to say or excuses for it, I just would challenge you, just commit six weeks to joining one of those groups and see what happens during it as well. I think you're going to be surprised at all that you learn, all that God does during those weeks. So would you just bow your heads with me and uh, close your eyes? Maybe this morning you've begun to realize that you're tired of chasing after these empty promises. Seeking out success, money, love, and approval of others. Maybe you're experiencing that restlessness or that despair that I mentioned. And maybe today you want to make a change. You want to begin to pursue something else. You want to find lasting peace and satisfaction. And so I just want to give you the opportunity to do that. To give up doing things on your own and instead to go a new path and to trust in Christ and to follow him in his ways. So... If that's you, I want to just lead you in prayer. Just join me. God, I just want to admit that at times I just do things on my own. I seek out other things for fulfillment and satisfaction rather than seeking after you. And yet I know that there's those moments, if I'm honest, where I just feel restless. I feel just empty. I feel like I'm not achieving those things that they've promised me. And so, God, I want to turn from those things and turn to you and begin to follow you. And so I just offer you my life. God, would you take it and would you lead me from here? And we pray this in your name. Amen.